This one has even me thinking about giving audiobooks another look. You're a voice actor. You're an entrepreneur. You're a VOpreneur. Welcome to the Everyday VOpreneur Podcast, your guide through the business of voiceover. Are you looking for some fun and unique ways to market your voiceover business over the holiday season? I've got a brand new marketing class available at VOpreneur.com that is going to give you 15 different strategies that you can expand upon. That is going to give you an entire month worth of content and marketing ideas. And oh, by the way, even though this is geared towards Christmas, you could repurpose this for basically any holiday throughout the year. Go to VOpreneur.com and look for Cash In on the Holidays. You'll find it available now for purchase and instant viewing at VOpreneur.com. Click on Store. The Veopreneur Podcast. Hey, it doesn't suck. Not as funny as Conan. Not as cute as Seth Meyers. Not as smart as Colbert. But he's one of us, and that counts for something. Here's Mark Scott, the original everyday Veopreneur. For many voice actors, audiobooks is the place they start. Countless hours spent prepping, reading, recording, editing, and delivering the stories that so many of us listen to on a daily basis. Now, to help give us a little more insight into the audiobook genre, I'm welcoming a guest with 23 years of experience, five Audi Award nominations, and this next one, particularly impressive, 1,000-plus audiobooks narrated and counting. Welcome to the show, Sean Pratt. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I feel like to do a thousand audiobooks, you've been in the booth recording since birth, basically. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, I realize that I'm going to be coming up on my 26th year. Okay. I guess I, guess I gave you an old old bio there. But yeah, I've been, I started in 90, or 27 almost. I started in 96. Wow. Initially, you know, I was a theater actor. That's what I, I started acting when I was 10. Started working professionally when I was 20. And I got into audiobooks around the time I was 30. Um, I was getting out of, I've been a repertory theater actor for a long time. Okay. And that's, it's a lot of fun, but it'll wear you out, yeah. that kind of schedule. But yeah, there was a big chunk of my, especially when the kids were little, uh, I was doing a book a week. I did 50 books a year, year over year over year. That is incredible. And yeah, it was pretty crazy. Now I do half that many because I coach obviously now. So This is going to be a really stupid question, I'm sure, but... The audiobook genre, I feel like I didn't even realize that it had been around that long. I mean, I guess I think about Amazon came and there's ACX and there's Audible and, and you know, I, I became more familiar with it. Obviously, the Internet, mid-90s. I mean, there was barely yeah. an Internet usable. So, but were they on CD before that? or like? Yeah. So, so originally, if you really want to go back, audiobooks, at least in this country, started with the Library of Congress doing archival recordings of things. Okay. This goes all the way back to the Great Depression in the 30s. Okay. And they did things like they would record musicians, you know, like Appalachian musicians or whatever. And then they said, well, why don't we do spoken word stuff? And so it goes way, way back. But as far as what we consider an audiobook, you know, you could sort of point to the 80s around that time, I'm guessing, okay. because of cassette tapes. Yeah. Um, and initially, audiobooks, by and large, they went into, they fell into a couple different. Some of them were for Library of Congress for archives. They never were released. Right. Then you had a batch that were more uh, promotional things, like they would do like a gimmick. It was a promo gimmick. Okay. So let's say the new Stephen King book comes out, The Stand, that says, you know, our, they would do like a little 60-minute or 90-minute clip or, you know, excerpts from it. They'd hire some Hollywood actor to do that. But really, um, books on tape and recorded books started the real floodgates of this. And what they would do is they would have them recorded in studio uh, in LA or New York, or Chicago, whatever. And they came out on cassette tapes and you'd go to the library and you would, you had this massive box, you know, and you pop it open and there was all the cassettes. Right. And of course we, we were recording on uh, ADAT machines yep. at the time, which is VHS tape. And then you dub them down to uh, your masters. Some people recorded on DAT, which is a smaller format. But the, the videotapes were a higher quality for its time. And so, yeah, it started out as cassettes. You would get them in a library. And then eventually recorded books had a thing where you could subscribe. Like, this really dates me, like the Columbia Record Club right. kind of stuff. Oh, yes. Right? You could, you could, you, and so that, that plastic box would come with a little tape thing on it. You'd listen to it when you're done. You'd do it and you'd drop it back off into, you know, in a post office box. And they would mail it back. And that's how the early 
you know, if you think about like a blockbuster video or right. early Netflix, it was it was all done by mail. And then when I came on board, we were still doing cassettes in '96, and then soon after, CDs came on, and so now the the, the size of the packaging shrank. Yep. But it was still CDs. Yep. Because there was no internet. I mean, the internet was starting to come on board. Very infant. Yeah. The size of the downloads was prohibitive. Eventually, it got can you imagine downloading an eight-hour audiobook on your twenty-eight-eight modem and on your Commodore sixty-four? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know. So you listen to them on cassette or CD. That's yep. how you did it. And um, uh, uh, so then I don't, don't, you know, it was around two thousand that we went digital. You know, and uh, at least I did anyway. And I, I, I used Pro Tools yep. to start, and then. Um, and we would burn CDs off of those, but sometime it was around the time that, well, Audible and you know came around, and then it was purchased by Amazon. But that Audible was the thing that broke through. You know, the the download speeds got faster. People's had you know a, a smartphones that you could download mm-hmm. to or your computer, and then it was those those things all came together in the early two thousands, and then the 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 audiobook industry just exploded. There, it grows on a geometric curve. Well, I was going to say with with high speed internet audible amazon right like that's really where it hits scale yeah. because it's so much more accessible to yeah. everybody at that point so right and now you know i i load it on my phone when i go for yeah. i'm on when i'm traveling or go for a run or whatever so i'm curious with a thousand plus in in your portfolio first book most challenging mm-hmm. book and maybe your all time favorite that you've been able to narrate okay first book was Cabbages and Kings by O. Henry. It was a piece of fiction, a bunch of short stories. Okay. Uh, I got that from Blackstone Audio. They were my very first clients okay. way back when. Uh, most challenging book. Um, in the fiction category, my most challenging book was Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. By far the most challenging fiction piece. It was well, 57 hours long. Oh, um, man. And then my most challenging nonfiction piece for me as a performer, I did a two volume biography of Abraham Lincoln by Michael Burlingham. And uh, that clocked in at 110 hours. Oh, it wow. took a year to record. I, and it came, this is back when they would send you the physical book. So like when I did Infinite Jest, they literally printed it out. And this huge box came of eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. Jeez. Which was good because I had to, you know, I was I marked up my script yep. like you do with regular VO, and then the Abraham Lincoln piece came as these. They looked like little like Britannicas, you know, yep. like phone books. They were huge, and so the text was tiny. So it was it was a lot of work to prep it. And um, the the one I enjoyed the most was that the question. Yeah, the most the one you enjoyed the most. All right. So in the fiction category, uh, Infinite Jest may be the ones I've enjoyed the most. Ironically, I normally don't. People ask me, do I listen to my own stuff? And I tell them I'd rather take a beating than listen to my own voice because I talk all the time. Yeah. But that one is one I could listen to again, and I have. Uh, and in the nonfiction category, wow, I've done so many amazing pieces. Um, I, I don't have necessarily a favorite. I have new favorites, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a book about four or five years ago called The Body Keeps the Score by uh, Bessel van der Kolk. He's a, a, a doctor. And it's how how we internalize emotional trauma in our body and how it manifests. Okay. Like how do you deal with PTSD yep. and so on? Yep. That was a really hard book to get through some of the stories, but very satisfying. But yeah, no, I could give you 10 great nonfiction pieces, but that one just pops to mind. So one of the reasons that I really enjoy the e-learning genre is because I feel mm-hmm. like I'm getting paid to learn on a fairly regular basis with some of this stuff. Now, sometimes I learn stuff that scares the crap out of me. You get into cybersecurity, <laughs> e-learning, and things like that. But there's got to be, I'm guessing, there's got to be an element of that in the audiobook space too, particularly with the nonfiction, right? You get to get oh, paid yeah. to read these oh, books yeah. and I, learn all this stuff, like you know the one you just mentioned. I joke that I'm very, very good at a cocktail party because I know a little bit about everything, <laughs> it seems. Filled with all Until, the like, knowledge. This, yeah. Well, I'm pretty good to chat until, you know, the second or third bourbon and then I'm I'm who knows what. <laughs> but, you know, I've done books on religion, on history, medicine, sci- science, contemporary culture, 
Do you want to know about arbitrage in international finance? I can tell you, I've done a book on it. You want to talk about, you know, how do you actually, what is a 401k considered to a Roth IRA? I can tell you all yeah. that. I've done books on it. And then you have offbeat topics. I just did a book that's just come out called The Hidden Tools of Comedy by Steve Kaplan. And this guy, he's a teacher, coach, and writer of comedy. He's worked on lots of shows yep. and does plays and theater movies. And it's like, how do you deconstruct a scene to write it? It's The book is pitched toward writers and directors and actors. How to not only uh, write a funny scene, but how to fix a scene when it's not working. Fascinating book. Well, I was going to say, some of that's got to translate into what you're doing in the booth by the sounds of it. It does. Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah. So, you know, I, yeah, you're right. I, I've gotten to explore topics. I would never have uh, picked up that book, but, you know, but I got paid to do it, obviously. <laughs> and you perform it and some of it sticks. Some of it sticks. Yes. As we head toward the new year, I hope that you're feeling optimistic about the opportunities that are out there. I know there's a lot of negative talk right now about inflation, interest rates, the economy, and of course, AI. And I'm not saying we should ignore all those things, but I also think that we have to be careful about giving them too much power. At the end of the day, you're still the CEO of your voiceover business. You are still in control of your voiceover business. And there are still plenty of opportunities out there and a lot of clients who still want to work with human voice actors. You just have to know how to go out there and find them. And that is what Voiceover Marketing Playbook is going to teach you. A step-by-step, easy-to-follow video course that is going to teach you how to find your own leads, build your own client base, and become the consistently working voice actor that you want to be. Playbook is back January 8th through the 17th, 2024. That's January 8th through the 17th, 2024. Mark it on your calendar, and you'll be able to get the details at voiceovermarketingplaybook.com. That's voiceovermarketingplaybook.com. Now, back to our show. I will be the first to admit, audiobook narration, the idea of it scares the living snot out of me. Like, I I just... (laughs) I have nothing but respect, like seriously mad respect for audiobook narrators, just not only the skill, but the stamina to get in and, and do some of these projects. I mean, some of the ones that you mentioned, they're, they're behemoths, but sometimes yeah. it does feel like audiobooks get a bit of a bum rap in the industry. Like they're the bastard child of the industry or something. Well, I was going to say, we're the ugly redheaded yeah. stepchild so of audio. Talk about that. Why do you think that is? And, and how, do we, how do we break that narrative? Oh boy, that's a hard one because. Well, first of all, when you look at the pace, I think it starts with pay scale. Mm-hmm. You know, so like I have friends who do cartoons and video games, you know, in LA and New York, and they make crazy good money. Yep. And then you've got right behind that, you've got corporate and e-learning. And then, of course, you've got commercial VO, which, you know, you can, if you land the right gig, it can be a national thing sure. and you can make bank on yep. that, right? And and then you look at how much how much time does it take to do something like that? And it's, you know, half an hour, hour, yep. a couple hours in the studio and you're done. Or you have a series, you know, like a, a, a guy I went to college with, Bill Salyers. He was the, I guess he was the raccoon on the normal show, the cartoon series. Okay. And, you know, so once a week, you know, he's going in to do episodes or he's been, he was Doc Octopus on a lot of the Spider-Man video game stuff. And, and you, so you compare the return on investment or return on time. And then you go down to audiobooks. <laughs> and we get paid by the finished hour, yep. not the performing yep. hour. And, and then there, then you have the added, you know, intensity of it's, you know, it's a 10 hour book when it's finished mm-hmm. and the normal, the normal, just the narration part, a good audiobook narrator, the ratio is about two to one. Okay. Uh, it takes about two hours of work yep. to generate one finished hour that needs to be proofed. And then it comes back with your corrections and so on. So you you figure, you know, if you're just narrating it, that's 20 hours of work in the studio. That doesn't count the prep time. Yep. And, you know, the union scale for uh, audiobooks is 260 a f- per finished hour. So you compare, so in other words, that's basically $130 per working hour. Mm-hmm. So when you compare that by the working hour compared to, say, e-learning yep. or a corporate gig, it, you know, it doesn't hold a candle. And so I, you know, yeah. And, and it's just this, it's a marathon. It's a marathon mentally, physically, vocally. Have the rates, and you have, oh, I was going to say, have the rates evolved as the, as audiobooks have hit scale? Well, you, you know, the problem is, is, okay. So when you do any, okay. When you do any learning gig yep. or a corporate gig or your commercial, the budget is already in place for the whole gig. Right. It's going to be paid and it's done. Yep. 
you see, right? So an audiobook is like buying a stock on Wall Street. You buy the stock and you have to let it mature over time or a CD, whatever analogy, you order, yeah. you know, it's going to take time sure. to recoup that money. For audiobook companies, what they do is they have their A-list titles they know they're going to make money on. Mm-hmm. And then they have to get a bunch of other stuff to sort of fill out their catalog, hoping some of those will hit. And they usually do, but not all of them. You know, like the, I did that Abraham Lincoln book, gosh, at least 10, if not 15 years ago. And when the producer came to me, the company, I said, my God, this is a huge product. It's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And they said, yeah, you know, it's, we figure it's going to be at least five to seven years before we ever see a, a, a dime out of this project. But, you know, they've got the recording, yep. you see. So it's a, it's, a, it's a different business model, you see. So when I, like yeah, I said, when I do an e-learning gig, they've already got the budget for it. Here, they're making an investment, hoping that the, the final product over time will sell. And that changes the whole way of looking at it. I think that's something even that I found interesting was learning that, you know, you see books on the New York Times bestseller. And I guess you just assume that all these books are selling millions and millions and millions of copies. And the reality mm-hmm. is that is not the reality. Books, even on the New York Times bestseller list, are, are not necessarily selling like that. And so I guess that becomes a, a factor in all of this, too. But I, I guess rates definitely are. I mean, that's the one thing that comes up over and over and over again, I guess, with audio. So, yeah. So what I, what I say to counter that is if, look, if you're happy to do, do it just to incorporate or commercials or whatever, fine, stick with it. But going back to my friend, Bill Salyers, you know, he spends his whole month every day, five to 10 auditions a day easily. Mm-hmm. Right. And he might only work two or three times a month, right? but he makes enough, you know, then that's the paradigm yep. of a, the, the kind of your world You see in my world, I get a book and I know I'm, I'm booked out for the next several weeks because you only, you know, you record maybe one or two finished hours a day, five days, six days a week. And if you do a book that's 10 hours, well, that's about 10, two weeks of work, you know? And so I like the consistency of it, right? Every yep. day I wake up, Makes I already sense. know I've got, I'm just, you know, like tomorrow I'm starting, a, I've got a series with Audiobook Empire. It's sort of a space Marines, you know, going up and fighting the bad guys in, in space kind of stuff. It's 15 books. And, you know, I'm on book three or four. And so I, once a month, I'll be doing that thing. So that consistency is nice. Yep, for sure. You know, from, from just from my, uh, from my temperament, you know, Bill likes the, the, the excitement of all the little jobs, knowing he might score one that turns into something big. For me, I like knowing that I've got four books in the pipeline and I'm booked out till January. A little easier to budget. Yes. The money is more consistent that way. Um, but the uh, uh, I pre but what I say to you know when I teach classes, I was just at uh, when I was at VO Atlanta this year, um, and I'll be going to the Mid Atlantic Voiceover Conference in a few weeks. And what I say to people from a VO background is, it's not all or nothing. It's not either or. It's a yes and. Yeah. So like if I were if you came and you were in my workshop, I would be saying what I'll say now is great. Stay with the corporate stuff. Stay with the e learning. But you should dabble into audiobooks because it can fill in the rest of your day, yep. you know? Yeah. Because there's going to be day there, days there are no auditions. And if you know you've got a book on a long enough deadline, and maybe you only do 30 minutes of finished material a day, maybe an hour, that's two hours every day, and you can audition for the rest of the time. So you're, what I'm saying is that you, you, for people who come from a VO background, commercial, corporate, whatever, this fills in the gaps yep. for them. That makes sense. And frankly, it'll make, I, I feel strongly, especially nonfiction, it makes you a better narrator. You you get to really explore technique. You have the vocal stamina to really, to stay in the, the project. And it, it's just, it's the difference between doing, you know, a, a couple lines on a movie and doing a, a Shakespeare play. You just become a better performer because of the stamina and focus involved. I, I recently did an e-learning project that, for all intents and purposes, it was an audiobook. It was like a field manual. And so I had Ooh. to map it out, right? It was it was an hour. Uh, I, I spent, I mapped out two hours every day for three weeks and was in the booth anywhere for, you know, an hour to two. Worked away at it a chapter at a time. Every, right. like every other word was an acronym, which was, you know, that's a whole other thing, but <laughs> you really do learn. We, we could talk about that. Yeah. You, yeah. you really do learn about stamina and you know how to, it, it's just, it's a totally different world. And I, again, it gives me a whole other level of respect, but I think, 
I think for any of us, there's also like I've talked to people who just love audiobooks, just like there are people who love animation or I love doing e-learning. I know it sounds like a random genre to some people, but I just really enjoy it. I really enjoy learning. And so I think that's there's an element of that, too, when you have that that passion and you're doing something that you're excited to get up in the booth and do every day, whatever the genre is, then you know, maybe the money's a little bit secondary to it as well, just because you're having fun and, and running your business and doing your thing every day, whatever it is that you want to do. Yeah. And, and there's, there's also the added thing too, uh, in the United States, you know, I'm a member of SAG-AFTRA. So once you generate, I think it's 27 or $28,000, uh, under union contracts, whether it's V, you know, commercial or audiobooks, whatever, you qualify for pension and health benefits. Yep. And that's a big deal in the yeah, country. Huge deal. You know, because because once you do that, you when I I've run the numbers and I talk about this too with my students, you know, when you look at the premiums you have to pay insurance wise, and the insurance we get through the union is really good, you basically once you hit that number, you've given yourself about a twenty thousand dollar bonus yeah. of money you didn't have to pay for health insurance. Yep. And that's a big deal. So however you get there, once again, that's one more incentive for at least the United States that I think people who do VO, you know, um, but there's also the the flip side of that, because a lot of people I know who do VO, they work, they're not in the union because they get more work doing non-union gigs. And you once you join, you can't do that. Although, interestingly enough, there's always a caveat somewhere. um, (laughs) Yeah, there's always a caveat. So when you when you join SAG after let's let's stay within the VO world, we have a thing called Global Rule One, which means no contract, no work. Right? You work under a union contract. You negotiate that. Um, but there is one area where that doesn't apply: audiobooks. Mm-hmm. You can work union or non-union. Okay. And the reason why that is is that's allowed us to turn a lot of these audio. Well, almost all of them now turn an audio like a little audiobook company or even the big ones we would go to work for them as union members and get enough of us on board and then we'd basically flip them into being a signatory okay or or flip them into agreeing to pay us through a paymaster as a signatory and so we get those those benefits right. so it's a it's they've loosened the rules a bit for us okay. and it's made all the difference in helping really good performers get into the industry okay now for you know, for someone say the, my Canadian students or whatever, it's a different story because you guys have national health care. But, you know, if you work for an American company, you get American rates. A lot of my students in the UK, they they would much prefer and they do. They like to work for the American publishers because the UK publishers can't offer even, yep. you know, what I've the half of what I just mentioned, the 260 per finished hour. That, that stands that stands true in, in Canada as well. Let's talk about the idea of paying your dues. I think that a, I think a lot of voice actors, they walk into this path and, and it's like, OK, I start with royalty share on ACX, although often there's no royalties to share. You know, maybe they try to work their way up to better books or bigger publishers, more more notable authors. Is there a path? Is that the path or is this whole idea that you got to pay your dues? Is that just a false narrative that people have bought into? No, you always pay your dues. You get, There's always those outliers you hear about some film actor in LA, you know, lucks into a, a book with Random House right. and then they start working all the time. Now that's, but that's the outlier. You know, here's the thing that what a lot of, it surprises me that sometimes performers, they don't learn the lesson. So, you know, I started out in the theater and I was working off with an off-Broadway class. I did classical theater. So I was doing off-Broadway classics at the Pearl and I worked around the country at regional theaters. Well, that's great. When I first started doing movies, I was a background artist. And then I worked my way up to under fives and then over fives. And then, you know, you, you, when you work and in, get into a new venue as a performer, you start at the bottom. Yep. You may get a little leg up because of your general, your, your talent and your technique, but you still have to start because it doesn't matter if you've done 15 TV shows. This is just a different kind of performance. Yep. And, I have to remind that to some of my students who come from theater or film backgrounds. And I, I, I tell them though, that since they are performers and they've got that work history, they'll, they'll get in the groove much quicker. But I'm, I always tell people, if you're going to get into audiobooks, you should take the notion of making any real money off the table for at least a year, because what you need when you start is you need the experience and the credits more than you need the money. 
Talk about the credits. Is, so, is there a benchmark? Like, if you want to level up with a publisher, you want to get to a more notable publisher, right. you've got to have X number of books or like, it, it helped. No, there's no, there is no, everybody's different. In okay. fact, we were just talking about this at the New England retreat. One publisher said, I don't care if you, you know, put it up there, but you have to understand if you have no experience in the thing, your performance will not be as good yeah. as someone who's done 20 or 50 sure. or a hundred books. Right. Yep. So there's that thing. obvious, you know, yardstick to get over, you know, okay. So for instance, I have a student, he's a film actor, does TV, and he's done maybe 10 books through ACX. And now suddenly, bang, he got picked up by, I want to say Tantor. Okay. And um, he just, he went ahead and auditioned for something that they posted and he did, he got it. And now they're keeping him busy. So you can still j jump to the front of the line as it were. But yeah, there has to, there is a learning curve because, you know, from the, from the publisher's perspective, they're not as likely to invest their money on an unknown quantity. Yep. You know, and even though you've done tons of e-learning in corporate, if you've never done and they're going to hand you a 12 hour book on astrophysics or, or contemporary culture, maybe break out of they want to know they're going to get right. They're going to, you're going to want to get a good performance. Absolutely. So work history does matter in the end, you know, but you know, ultimately it's about storytelling. Are you a good storyteller? And the audiobooks, you know, if you think of in the nonfiction world, which is what I mainly narrate, if you think of that book as a one person monologue, like a one man show, okay, think of it like that, that you're in front of an audience doing this performance, yeah. like Hamlet or something, yep. right? But it's a 10 hour Hamlet and you're the only guy on stage. Um, that's a good way to think about it. And when you do fiction, of course, then you're playing with all the voices. And telling the story. And that's a lot of fun if you're into character voices and, and so on. Like I'm getting ready in a couple of weeks. I'm going to be doing an Agatha Christie mystery, an Hercule Poirot piece. And so I've been, you know, working on my cheesy French accent and getting my British stuff all polished up. Yeah. And it's going to be a lot of fun. But yeah, no, the, the benchmark to me, well, usually I tell my students, get 10 books under your belt before you really start thinking about branching out. You need those because every book you do you're going to grow in your technique, in your confidence, in your abilities by orders of magnitude every single time. Yeah. You know, and you need that. So that's where, I mean, that's also where, you know, you mentioned two to one ratio for recording to, to finished hour. That's where you get the four to one down to the three to one down to the two to one. And same thing with, with editing, right? You, you, it's getting yeah. in your reps and, and getting more efficient as you go. So, I'll tell you a little anecdote. So my first book, Cabbages and Kings. So um, at the time, I, I didn't have a home studio. And that's another thing that happened for me. I came into the industry when the home studio concept was just starting. Yep. I got lucky because before that, it, unless you were in New York, LA, or major city, they didn't want to touch you yep. because they wanted you in-house. But because the volume of books kept growing, they couldn't keep up. And that's where home studios and the technology got cheaper and better for it. And so it's my first book. And I'm, I'm going to a, a, a buddy's house, a friend I'd made professionally. And um, I had a monitor outside the booth who was going to basically proof me as I recorded so we could make edits right then. And this is back in the days of ADAT. And you had this little remote control shuttle yep. if you going back a thousand years. Yep, I remember. So I was having to, so I'm having to perform it and manipulate the thing all at once. And it's my first book. So I've read the book. I've made my notes, but I'm in the box. And Bernadette is sitting outside with her headphones on. And uh, my friend was Grover Gardner, who works for Blackstone Audio. He's done, he's done close to 2,000 books. Wow. He's a, he's, yeah, he's, he's a real war, but he's been doing it for, 30 some odd years now. But anyway, so I'm, I'm behind the mic, I'm ready to go. And you, you would book a three hour session in one of his booths. And in my very first session, after three hours of work, I narrated about 15 minutes of material. Yep. And so I finish and it was one of the most exhausting, tense filled moments. You know, I, it's like, I couldn't, I couldn't speak. I couldn't get past two sentences. So I thank Bernadette. Thank you very much. I get in my car and I lived in, uh, in Virginia at the time. So I drove out of DC, got back to Alexandria 
And I walk into the apartment I was living in with my girlfriend at the time. I walk in and just collapse on the rug in the, in the middle of the living room. I'm laying there staring up at the ceiling. And she walked over, she said, are you okay? And I said, this is so much harder than I ever thought it was going to be. Yep. Uh, but I had nothing else in front of me as a performer. So I went back the next day and I did 20 minutes. Yep. And then, I, you know, it's like it was a process of learning to relax and focus and do all the stuff. It was like learning how to play the piano in a way and sing at the same time. You know, it was hard. I, and and it takes time to get that to, to shrink that ratio. Kids these days, man. Kids these days don't know how lucky they got it with their Adobe <laughs> audition. I mean, come on, man. I started in radio with reel to reel and carts and and if you didn't, you if it. you didn't nail the commercial on the first take recording live, you had to go back and do it over again. And there was, there was no edits and yeah, I, uh, that's, it, it totally was it. That would have been a totally different experience even from now, but that's any script, right? I've been there with e-learning. There's been, there's mm-hmm. been e-learning scripts. Even now there's e-learning scripts where sometimes I just want to curl up in the fetal position in the corner of my booth and be like, I can't do this. It's the acronyms, <laughs> man. It's the acronyms. <laughs> yes. Acronyms. And also, you know, it's funny when I, I do a lot of e-learning too, when you're doing government e-learning, the syntax is odd. So you think, well, that needs a, that needs a verb yep. or that needs a, that needs a conjunction. No, that's the way they say that turn of phrase, yep. which is why, you know, when I do e-learning, which does pay a lot more, you know, the first thing I do is I, I clear everything out and I, I go, I go word for word through that script yep. and I get on the phone with the producer to make sure that's correct. And I got a real taste of that back so in the 90s and, and through the 2000s, I did in, in D.C., I did hundreds of on-camera industrial training films as the host. You know, so I'm in the suit in front of the green screen. And I did those for governments and corporations and I did convention work, but basically learning to read mm-hmm. a teleprompter. And so, you know, you'd get the script the night before and you'd have to go through it because if there was a mistake, and it was always a mistake, and you had to correct that on the prompter so you could have the smoothest read, yep. you know, possible. But e-learning, yeah, e-learning acronyms will kill you, and the syntax they use yep. can be really weird sometimes. I want to go back to something that you said a couple of minutes ago because I, I think this is a really important distinction. You were talking about nonfiction, and I loved the idea of the one-person monologue, and that made me think because for me personally, as a reader, if I'm going to grab a book to read, it's generally more often than not, it's a biography. And mm-hmm. I'm reading Schwarzenegger's Be Useful right now. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so I, I watched the documentary series on Netflix a few weeks ago. And then I, I heard Schwarzenegger on the Tim Ferriss podcast. And so then I had to buy the book. And as I'm reading the book, I literally feel like I'm sitting across the room and I'm reading it. I'm not listening to the audio, but it does feel like I'm just sitting there with him, listening to him tell the story, which is yeah. why the way that you yeah. describe that of a one person show, I was like, that's so that's so genius. That really that makes sense to me. Talk a little bit about the difference or is there subtle differences between nonfiction and fiction and how you approach that as a storyteller? Because I know you're big on nonfiction, still approaching nonfiction as a storyteller. Yeah. So one of the big misconceptions people have about narrating nonfiction is they equate nonfiction with Mm non-acting. Like I'm just reading the words. No, you're not. No, you're not. That's what AI does. Yep. And we can talk about AI in a little bit. Um, yeah, we got, we're going to have to go down yeah, that the, rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, we have to. Yeah, I know. The thing to remember is that, so we start with the premise of that there is acting involved. Mm-hmm. There's basically four big obstacles that stand in your way. If you Like if you were to come to me as my student or trying to get into it, there's really four obstacles. The first one is you have to realize that every decision you make about the book when you're prepping it, every decision has to be with an eye of making it entertaining. Mm-hmm. Okay, every decision, because that is the only yardstick you measure an audiobook right. by. Yep. Was the listening experience entertaining? That's it. Okay. So big or small, you know, like, do I want to use this voice, the tempo here, an acting choice there? It all gets back to that. And that's the core of the act. And the second one is, yes, there is acting involved. But if you don't realize that, you're just going to grind your way through the text, which is no different than AI, yep. which is terrible, right? Yep. That's not entertaining. The third obstacle is realizing that the challenge becomes you have fewer storytelling tools than you do in fiction. Because in fiction, we have zombies and love scenes and we got funny voices and interesting genres to play with. In nonfiction, really all you have is the author's voice 
as it were, you know, in quotation marks, their voice giving you their intellectual premise, idea, or argument in a logical progression through the book. So by the time it's finished, they have revealed their truth to you. So when you finish his book, Arnold Schwarzenegger will have revealed his truth Mm -hmm. to you, the thing he wants to share, right? Yep. But what we don't get to play with are things like, like I said, you know, voices and gunfights and zombies. So it's like you have, you've gone from having, you know, 50 storytelling tools to use in fiction down to say five in nonfiction. Right. Okay. So you have to learn to use those fewer tools as a performer with a lot greater skill. And then the last obstacle is stamina, which we've already touched on. You know, it just takes a lot more mental, vocal and physical focus to maintain the pitch of the performance you want. Because, you know, I mean, it's like if you were to go see a play in the matinee and the actors are flat because they're all tired. Well, it's not entertaining. Yep. And every book requires a different kind of intensity. So like the, the comedy book I just mentioned was really fast and poppy. It was very funny. The guy wrote in short, punchy sentences, really sharp guy. And it had a sort of a real energetic feel to it. Well, then I did this other book. It was a business book by this man who runs an MBA program out of Stanford. And it felt very legato, very long and sort of slow and full and very intricate, but the feeling was different. Well, you've got to match that every day while you work on it. So, so there's that. So there, yes, yeah, so there is acting involved, but then to stay into one of the thing that I teach, I, I talk it all, I use it all the time, is that broadly speaking, performing nonfiction books is like giving a TED talk. Ooh, and it's based on a real simple premise that I learned as a kid in the theater. In the theater, before you start acting, you ask yourself three questions. Who are you? Where are you? And who are you talking to? Mm-hmm. So you answer those questions and you make believe in it. You make yourself believe in it. Yep. Now you're ready to act. Well, so in, so let's do the, the comedy book. I'm, I'm going to use it. It's the example because I think it's a great book. I think everybody should get it. It's a great piece for performers. Um, who am I? Well, I'm obviously the character of the author. But I'm not trying to be Mr. Kaplan specifically. What I always do is I turn the author into an archetype. So I'm the comedy teacher, or I'm the astrophysicist, or I'm the English professor, you see. Yep. I'm, I'm the archetype of the character, of the, of the author. I'm not trying to mimic the way the author speaks. Because, I mean, what happens if he's got a really thick Canadian Canuck accent and he has a stutter? Right. I'm not going to do that in the recording, right? Yep. So... So you are always the character of the author. Now, the, then you build a backstory for yourself to say, where are you and who you're talking to? So this is where the TED Talk idea comes in. I always narrate. This is different from regular VO. When I do commercial or corporate or, or e-learning, it's a one-on-one experience. I'm talking to that learner, to that, right? But I, I realized I couldn't do that in my audiobooks because it pulled the energy down too much. You can do that for a five-minute e-learning program. You can't do that for a 15-hour book. So I always narrate to an audience of people, right, in a certain size room. Now, the the number of people and the size of the room will vary to whatever feels right. So it might be five people around a conference table, 50 people in a room, 5,000 people in a huge amphitheater. So in the comedy book, I, I was about, it was like 100 people in a workshop in New York in a theater that I'd worked in. So it's a place I've always been to, so I can feel Mm -hmm. it. I know it. And then the audience, who are you talking to, is always a supportive audience. It's the target audience for the book. So in my mind, I am Mr. Kaplan, or the the comedy teacher, at this specific theater on St. Mark's Avenue. And in the audience are 100 writers, directors, and actors who are really interested in learning how to write and perform comedy. So I build that little triangle, and I live inside of it in my head. And so suddenly, I am literally, right now in my mind's eye, I'm standing on that stage, and I can see the audience. And what that does is when you have an audience, you're always pushing the energy out on the read. In a way, it's sort of, it's analogous, although it's not as aggressive. It's like when you do a car ad, when you do a yell and sell, as they call it. You know, you're, you're grabbing the whole audience. You're not talking to one person. You're telling everybody. It's in the same family. So anytime you listen to anything I narrate, just know that I've built that triangle, which is like a TED Talk, if you think about it. 
and I am in some kind of specific place talking to a specific audience. And what that does is it turns the text into a script. My monologue is there. Right. And once you go down that line, then you're going, well, how does the author feel? Because now it's a character. And if you look carefully enough in the text, the author will tell you paragraph by paragraph how they feel about what they're discussing. And that's where you get the acting cues, you see. Yep. And I'm angry about this, or let me tell you this wonderful, funny anecdote, yep. or this is a really challenging, okay, well, there's my acting thing right there. It's really simple, but it makes all the difference in the world for the listener. I had Everett Oliver on the podcast recently, and we were talking about specifically, he was diving more into commercial, some into gaming, but, but talking about how he can tell when he hears an audition, whether or not it's been prepped, you know, did you just print this off, walk into the booth and start reading? Or did you sit this down, actually read through the directions and the brief that was provided? And are you right. putting that into the audition and how that can make that often is what makes the difference between the voice actor, that books, the voice actor that doesn't book. So right. is it fair to say that that's, it sounds like that's what's going on in audiobooks as well is, is probably the ones that it are should. doing really well are the ones that are going through that process you just described versus the one who's just grabbing the book, opening it up, you know, maybe looking it over, but walking into the booth and just trying to phone it in almost. Yeah. I mean, well, here's, you know, here's the irony. There are some people who are just damn good storytellers and they also have great voices and they can pick it up and just go. I mean, I've been doing this long enough. If you give me a book and give me a few seconds, I can figure it out and give it a pretty good read. Not as good as it would have had I prepped it, but it would still be a good read. But that's earned. But that's just that's also, work is that's, yeah, yeah, that's, like, that's right. earned, right? You're not just so, first day walking in and doing it. That's 20 no. years of doing it every day. For most narrators, when they get into nonfiction, they, since they don't understand these things that I've just discussed about the obstacles that get in your way, yep. or that you got to act and have, a, and having a distinct point of view. Yeah. They're just reading the text and they're making sense of it. I'll tell you another little thing that that's also slightly different from corporate and e-learning. So when we're doing corporate and e-learning, you're basically narrating sentence to sentence. They've been, the, the sentences have been structured to give you little bits of information, yep. right? But in nonfiction, when you read, you know, when you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger's book, you're going to discover that, you know, once you have a noun and a verb, you've got a sentence, so you've got to put a period on it. That's the rules of grammar. But that's not actually the way we think. Yeah nor is it the way we actually speak. Yep. Because like right now, I've been discussing this concept to you. If I wrote it down, there'd be like, I've already gone through four or five sentences, but have you heard me stop? No, why? Because I'm pursuing the little idea that's inside the paragraph. Right. And once again, that's like, um, it's like if you were a musician learning to read the music ahead of yourself. And as in our world in VO, you read slightly ahead. What you're looking for is, is the idea that the author's working through continuing on into the next sentence? If so, I'm going to continue on until I reach the end of that little idea. Boom, put a period on it. Yep. And then maybe pick it up and then finish off the paragraph. That's a technique issue, but that's how it sounds conversational. Okay. Right? Yep. So you have to fight that. And that's one of the things that I learned because I didn't do corporate or e-learning until after I got into audiobooks. And I had to unlearn that for corporate because – their stuff is their little nuggets, little little slugs yep. on this. You know, yep. you've got that little slug. It's to time, and that thing beat that thing beat that thing, and so on. Mm -hmm. And that's a different way of approaching the text. So we got to go there now because you brought it up. You brought <laughs> you brought it up. Actually, this is one of the things that I've been enjoying because I've had you know I mentioned I had Everett on. We talked about commercial. I had Christina Malizzi yeah. on. We've talked about gaming and animation. Uh, you know, I've had uh, Liz Dinesh on, we've talked about telephony, you know, so I've been bringing in some different people to talk about different genres. And I'm one question I'm asking everybody is their take on, on AI. And, and I think right. the narrative in the industry as a whole is primarily negative, right? We're, we're all doomed and, and this is the end. And that seems to be <laughs> what a lot of voice actors think, but from the experts that I'm speaking to in different genres, that's not what they're thinking. That's not how they're feeling. And I think one of the common themes, and you've made it abundantly clear here too, acting, 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 right? AI can't act yet. So talk about AI in the audiobook space and, and what are your thoughts on where you see it now and, and, and where you see it going? So it's already here, mm -hmm. right? And I think instead of thinking of it as, I think the key here is 
we use the term AI, artificial intelligence, but I think that's actually a misnomer when it comes to what we're doing because AI is a predictive algorithm, right? So you, like when you go to chat GPT, you can give it parameters and it'll, it'll, it'll create this new thing. Well, really it's done. It's, it's, it's derivative. Yep. It's pulled from its database yep. to make this thing. Okay. So it doesn't create anything new. And, you know, AI is going to be here. It's going to take some telephony away, some e-learning, some corporate, if they're, if they're, if they're more concerned with money and not yep. what really counts, which is retention. You know, they've done studies. I'm sure maybe other people have mentioned this. They've done studies on, say, college students. And when they're listening to just the AI, they still need to look with the audio book or the book, rather, because because after a while, they almost tune out the AI. Yep. And I think it's because, well, at its core, AI does not have an opinion about what it's telling you. Mm -hmm. But the author had an opinion, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so what makes us different than AI is that when you do text analysis, whether it's for an e-learning gig, corporate, or an audiobook, the author will tell you how they feel. Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Right? I did a uh, little interview with a, a guy a while back who there's, there's a new AI program that you have a slider that can set the intensity of the read which was really strange. He took a piece that I sent him and had AI read it and he fudged with the thing. So it got more and more intense when he did the But I said, that's all well and good, but that's just more emphatic. And it still doesn't sound natural. It's still, well, it's that what they call the uncanny valley yeah. where it sort of sounds right, but it doesn't. Yep. But the, the thing is, is that, okay, so this pair, like paragraph by paragraph, an author will tell you how they feel. And so, you have to have the savvy to analyze the text to go, oh, they're sad here. Well, what does it sound like to be sad? Right. What is the melody, rhythm, and tempo of sad right. as opposed to anxious, as opposed to joyous, as opposed to angry? Those alter the way we speak, right? And like right now, I'm being overly sincere and emphatic. And if you want to back it off, maybe I'm very sad now and I'm right. depressed because this was a sad thing. And now I'm speaking slower and quiet. It's those kinds of cues that the listener needs to know what they should be thinking as well. Yep. So that's the one of the first flaws. Another thing that I point out all the time to my students, and when I this question comes up, AI does not have a sense of humor. Nope. Or irony. Nope. Or sarcasm. In fact, if you're a Star Trek fan, the the whole plot line of Mr. Data from Next Generation was he was trying to be more human and there was always a struggle for him to understand humor mm -hmm. because humor comes in a million different flavors. Yep. I mean, there's there's by nation, there's Canadian humor and American humor. Yep. There's men, women, kids, generational humor, situational humor, you know, uh, and, and humor comes in all these different shades. And that's just general jokey things. Well, then we get into irony. Yep. How do you play an, a, a line ironically or sarcastically? And there's also different flavors of those things. AI has no clue. And by the time you, and, and then if you would say, well, they can get an engineer to do that. Really? That means the engineer has to have the ear and understanding about what is, is this line ironic to begin with? Yep. So they have to have the same skill set I have. And then they have to have the skill set of manipulating the vocal wave yep. to reflect that, which is if you're going to go through all of that, just use a freaking human. Just hire me. Yes, yes exactly. Use a freaking human. So, I hear this a lot on, and I read this on message boards and it just gets my hackles up. Someone will say, well, I, I narrate, you know, fiction and murder mystery, but AI will just take away all the nonfiction stuff because that's not really acting. And I want to, you know, grab that person and throttle them. But the thing to realize is that if you go from the premise that there is acting, no, you need a real person. Now there's going to be people who listen to nonfiction who are, who just want the information. Mm -hmm. Those are the people who listen to audiobooks at four o'clock in the morning when they're on the Stairmaster, yeah. you know, on two or three times the speed. They're just ingesting information. Okay. There is an audience there, but it's very small. Yeah. The other thing about the AI, at least in my world in audiobooks, I feel it's a solution in search of a problem. I, I always, I've been joking for a while that at, at Amazon, there was a meeting a while back where they were all around the 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 conference table and the the guy or gal running the meeting said okay guys jeff needs a new yacht so we got to figure out a way to make ai work or whatever 
Now we have some safeguards. You know, our union has has an agreement with Audible about AI usage and so on. And yes, you're going to have unscrupulous players out there, but in the long form narration, AI sounds really good for about five to ten minutes, and then that first word is slightly off. The emphasis is off, or the 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 sentence doesn't quite land because there's no opinion behind it. And then you're out of it. You're like, whoa, that's a machine. I'm trying to figure this out because the same people that are making the decisions about whether or not they're going to use these synthetic voices are also the people who are smashing the phone receiver against the wall when they get stuck in an endless loop of AI prompts in an on-hold messaging system. And they're like, this is the worst thing to listen to in the world. Give me a human. Right. They've been through that experience, but they're like, we should get these things to do our audiobooks. That would be a really great Cause idea. Because it, it's cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> it's cheaper and faster. Well, okay, so here's the analogy I've been using. My partner, Anna Clements, uh, came up with it. And I think it's brilliant. You go, I want a steak. That's what I want. I want a steak. And you go to the restaurant and they go, well, you could have this prime rib, this inch and a half thick prime rib with horseradish sauce, beautiful cut, whatever. Or you can have chopped hamburger meat. But here's the problem. Uh, they both cost the same. We're going to charge you the same as the prime rib as you got for that. And that's what ultimately they're trying to do. They're trying to save money on the back end not realizing that the consumer is going to go, this is hamburger. Yeah. I don't like it. I, you know, I, I, there have been more than enough stories that I've, you know, these are anecdotal, non-scientific, where audio companies are like, we don't want that because we're getting crappy reviews. They're saying this wasn't a good experience. It wasn't entertaining. Well, I'm thinking about and if you start from that premise, if I'm a CEO and I've got my staff sitting through important safety training or something like that, right? I'm coming from the e-learning space. I don't need them tuning out on that, right? Like that's yes. a lawsuit waiting to happen. That's a, a, a workplace injury or accident waiting to happen. But it feels like it's one of those things where it's going to have to happen before they're like, oh, maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. And Maybe we right. Well, there's, they've done, like I said, they've done some stu studies about the retention rates. Yep. You know, and once again, AI gets into a rhythm of its own narration. And, you know, there's that thing where when you're, your brain, the way it's evolved, it, you know, it, it's evolved so that if it senses an ongoing pattern, whether visual or auditory, it goes into autopilot. That's how it conserves energy for your because thinking is expensive when it comes to calories, yep. when you think about it. So when you get a good performer, whether in whatever VO it is, the as I say to my students, that your narration must be consistently inconsistent. It's constantly changing. Like you and me talking right now, it's a little fast, a little slow. Yep. We emphasize this, we stop, we laugh, whatever. Yep. All those changes keep the listener's brain engaged. But if the tempo of the read never really varies and there's no emotion, emotional connection. You got Ben Stein from Ferris to, Bueller. <laughs> yes. Yes. Or Hal from 2001. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's it's almost a, a comic trope of its own. Yep. But but if you don't have that emotional connection to the material. And, and so you're right. For e-learning corporate, it's not going to have the same punch. And eventually they'll figure it out. Eventually. You know. Fingers crossed. Well, Sean, I literally feel like I've just sat through a masterclass. And I think what's really interesting <laughs> is that I don't, I don't necessarily feel like I sat through a masterclass in audiobooks. I feel like everything that you've talked about is a masterclass, just voiceover across the board. Like you could literally apply the stuff to, to any genre at the end of the day, when it comes down to, you know, getting the yeah. acting right and, and doing your preparation properly and, and putting in the effort and putting in the work. But I know that you do a lot of coaching in the audiobook space, I'm guessing you do other long form genres as well, or tell us about so, your coaching. No, my, my coaching. So I'm um, what they call a strategic coach. So for a lot of, so if you wanted to work on your golf swing, you'd go to the golf course and hire the pro to work with you and they would correct you right then. That's tactical. Yep. So like if you're doing a workshop on cartoon characters, I said, no, hit that word, do this. Okay. That's tactical coaching, mm -hmm. but I'm strategic. So I have a curriculum. It's like going back to university, basically. I meet my students once a month. Every time we meet, there is a lesson already ready to go. But I teach through nonfiction. And then I teach the business of audiobooks so they can learn to how to make a living at it. I wanted both of those things together. And I, you can't teach that on the fly. You have to have a, you know, handouts and materials and so on. And that's what I do. Um, I 
also do one-offs for people. I get a lot of narrators who come to me for a couple of quick lessons because, oh, okay, let's say you, let's say tomorrow you get hired to do a nonfiction piece and you've never done one before and you're panicking. And then I get a lot of people like you would come to me for a couple of quick lessons to get you up and running and we would work tactically, and, but I would still give you some stuff to work mm-hmm. on. I'm a much more of a teach a man to fish as opposed to giving you the fish. Right. Um, now, you know, and the other thing I do is I also coach authors who narrate their own material. Uh, so for instance, well, I'm not sure if Arnold Schwarzenegger would want to narrate his entire book, but oftentimes you'll have a celebrity in their own field Yep. and they, they, well, I want to narrate my piece. And if they work it out with the audio company, or sometimes they just come to me privately and I teach them some basic things over several weeks to get them ready for the experience. Right. But mainly what I do is I teach through nonfiction, although I have been told by my students that 80% of what I teach them, they use in their fiction work. Mm -hmm. And for my students who do e-learning and corporate, they use everything I teach them in the other world. Well, I mean, that's dance to reason with what I just said. I feel like I sat through a masterclass that wasn't, you know, this was supposed to be about audiobooks, and it was, but it really could be about just about any genre in voiceover. Yeah. And so we, you know, and, and when I, I, I go through di- the different nonfiction genres, we touch on e-learning and corporate through this context of audiobooks, meaning like, how do you do an interactive uh, self-help piece where you tell them to, you know, we're going to do this exercise now. Well, that's e-learning. Or you might do a how-to book where they have to write down instructions for something. That's e-learning too, mm-hmm. in a way, or corporate. Um, we, we deal with how to break down the script, script analysis, and of course, the performance of it. You know, there are certain rules, as it were, to narrate a nonfiction piece, just like there are certain expected rules for corporate and e-learning. And we discuss that too. Uh, and then I help them with their demos and their promotional stuff so they learn how to go out and hunt down the work. And, you know, we're in website construction and branding is a big thing I'm into. So, yeah, it's, it's a two-pronged program. I teach through nonfiction but I also teach them the business of audiobooks at the same time. So if somebody is interested in working with you, where do we go to find out a little bit more information? How do we get in touch? So you can check out my website, seanprattpresents.com. That's seanprattpresents.com. It's got all my different stuff in there. You can click through. Uh, You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at SPPresents. Or LinkedIn, but my email address, if you want to go right to that, is Sean Pratt, S-E-A-N-P-R-A-T-T, at Comcast.net. And uh, what I usually do is I send you some promo stuff. We set up a time for a free consultation, and I sort of do a little presentation where I say, this is what I do and how I do it, and I let you ask me any questions you'd like. So I would, you know, because it's a long, it's a big commitment. I'm with a student for at least a year. And I want them them to understand what they're getting into. It's not a one-off right. workshop kind of situation. It's not free form. It's there's always going to be a plan every time we meet. But yeah, that's how they can get a hold. Of all right, it. and I'll include all of that in the show notes, so it's really easy for anybody to sure. find if you want to find his website, social media, etc. This has been amazing, Sean. Has been a really great oh, conversation. I was nervous at the beginning. We were having some technicals, but <laughs> but we got it all sorted out, and we were able. To we got there in the end. And yes. uh, man, this was this was absolutely fantastic. So. Thank you so much for the time that you've given us and, and for the information that you've shared. And this is one that I'm going to enjoy going back and listening to on the edit so that I can make some notes on a few of the things that you said, because I can already think of how some of this is even going to apply to the to the e-learning that I've done. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. I'm not kidding. When I said that I came into this interview expecting that I was going to talk to Sean about audiobooks, because it's a genre that I know nothing about and I know he knows everything about, that's what I assumed we were going to do talk about audiobooks. But wow, wow, he covered so many other things that are completely relevant across basically any genre of voiceover. And so whether you do audiobooks or not, I hope that you learned a few things from this interview. I'm sure you picked up a few tips. If you did, let me know. Post it on your Instagram stories. Make sure you tag me at Mark Scott and tag Sean at SP Presents. And also, If you enjoyed this interview, if you picked up some helpful tips, if there's some things that you learned that are going to make a difference in your voiceover business, would you do me a favor and leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts? I would truly, truly appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll catch you on the next one. The Everyday VOPreneur Podcast. Available everywhere fine podcasts are given away for free. 
Mostly, we think. You have a great website, right? Well, make sure you host it at some place that doesn't suck. Hey, it's Brad Newman, fellow VO Pro for 28 years and owner of UpperLevelHosting.com. People ask why us, and that's simple. We make it easy, respect your time, save you money, and just make all the magic happen. You don't need to know all the tech stuff when it comes to hosting your website. We got you. Ask around tens of thousands of client interactions later and six years of amazing customer service and not a single negative complaint ever. UpperLevelHosting.com And scene. And that's a wrap. Thanks for hanging in. Thanks for hanging out. Want more VOPreneur goodness? Jump online at VOPreneur.com.